blessing to have everyone here with us today on this wonderful, beautiful winter morning. Baruch Hashem. I told someone earlier that we just, our, 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 our feast schedule is, uh, is Tisha B'Av and then Hanukkah. And then, then Tisha B'Av again and then Hanukkah again. So that's the weather. But thank God we're not having a winter storm, right? And probably about mid-July we'll be saying, where is those cool days again? Baruch Hashem. So we're happy, right? We're going to be happy. Everything is from Hashem. So we thank God for it. And it's a big, it's a big joy. Baruch Hashem. Wow. Y'all are beautiful people. You know that? You really are. All of you beautiful people. <laughs> yes. Want to open up with the, um, the Baraka for uh, the Torah reading. Or excuse me, the Torah study anyway. And we're going to get right to, uh, right to blessing Hashem and diving into His Word. So much goodness that goes on with the Torah portions. It's amazing. Blessed are Yodamara, God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth, and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are Yodanai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen, amen. Parasha Shemini. This is a wonderful parasha, uh, as all the parashot are. But every, the, the story of this parasha, the strange fire story, is something that is near and dear to, to me. Uh, always has been. It is, as we've been speaking lately about why we do what we do, it is very much the why of who we are as a, as a community and a congregation. It's the why of Lapid. Not to, I, I promised that I wasn't going to preach this message again uh, because I have like every year at Shemini. So, <clears throat> but um, the why is, is basically this. When the pattern's right, the glory falls. That was, I, that was a, a message that I listened to or watched way back when there were still VHS cassette tapes. That's really the message that kick-started my, my whole life, my whole spiritual life. There was a rabbi who was teaching, and he was saying his message was, when the, when the pattern is right, the glory falls. The pattern being, the pattern being Hashem's pattern, not our pattern, right? So <clears throat> when the pattern's right, the glory falls. So we have to understand that this, this is the truth. Now, I just want to make a, a statement I've made before, but I feel compelled to, to make it again to hopefully um, help people out, and, and especially those who, who tune into us online, because you're the most at risk. <laughs> you're at risk, right? Because you're not, you're, not, uh, you're not here in person, at least not always. You're online. And so being online, there's wonderful things about the internet, right? Thank Hashem for the internet. Because while you're standing in Lowe's looking at a, a gas grill, you can Google to see if it's on sale anywhere else. That's a beautiful feature, right? It's a beautiful feature. Other beautiful things about the internet, there's wonderful uh, things, there's wonderful tools on the internet. But the, also, the bad thing about the internet is that it's like the Garden of Eden. There is a, a, a tree of life and then there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
So I just want to encourage you that uh, if you spend your life online, I try not to, but if you spend your life online, if you have an online life, uh, try just be very cautious about the websites that you visit. And if you're going to glean information about Yeshua Center Judaism or, or Judaism in general, particularly Yeshua Center Judaism, you're going you're gonna to have two options, right? You can, you, can, you, can, you can go to www.mylapid.com. Make sure you say mylapid.com. All right, because if, if you don't say mylapid, you're not going to get your lapid. You're going to get something else. <laughs> mylapid.com or mysarshalom.com, right? And there's, there's literally, if you go, if you go to um, Sarshalom and you, you get into live stream, I don't know. There's like several hundred hours of droshes, right? Yes. If you go to our, our YouTube page, there are hundreds upon hundreds of hours of droshes and of classes and all kind of stuff, right? You, really, why go anywhere else? I mean, that's, I mean, what else? I mean, how much, how much soup can you eat? I mean, this is a lot, right? You just, you know, we, and now, thanks to, uh, we, we have the, uh, thanks to uh, a lot of effort and work on the part, we have now the podcast. Now, as you're driving down the road, you can, you can podcast it or whatever, right? I don't know. I, don't, I never do that. But, I mean, you can do that. And all that stuff is awesome. And then, and on top of that, we are eventually, one of these days, um, before Mashiach comes, I'm going to get back to Shalom Studios, and we're going we're to make some more videos, right, Mikael? I know. I'm, I'm saying it out loud. I'm kidding, you know, right. Come on. I'm not scared. Okay. Where do you live again? Okay. <laughs> so, we're going to do that again. So, so there's going to be all kinds of information. If you don't do that, for some reason, you know, you've lost your mind, you don't want to do that. <laughs> The only other option you have is to go to a verified, vetted, Jewish, Jewish, Orthodox Jewish website, such as Chabad. Anything else is lotov. I, I want you to hear me on that. Anything outside of a vetted, verified, Orthodox website, if you're going to learn something, and you pull up, you know, I'm not going to get into it, but you know, you pull up suchandsuch.com and it's not Orthodox Judaism, then you just know that you're in, an, you're in an area in which the blind are leading the blind. People that don't know anything have written an article and you're reading it. Okay? I mean that. I want you can take that, you, I can, you can take that check to the bank and cash it. I want you to hear me on this. Be careful. Just, why? I mean, come on. What we share here is actual, actual literature, right? I mean, I have a nice library, thank God. And others have nice libraries, right? And it's actual real stuff. It's real, like physical, you can pick it up. And, you know, somebody, somebody texts me and says, hey, Rabbi, I found this. I go and pull it off the shelf and look at it. Like, oh, wow, that's really awesome. I don't go to www.idontknowanything.com. I just, I want you to hear me on this, right? It's very important, right? So just, I'm trying to help people out because we live in a society of the internet and it's, it's so, it's so crazy. Did Prep Day find that? What's the reference? 539. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> 539. I want you to look at uh, the book of Acts. Chapter 5 and verse 39. Thank you very much for looking that up for me, Shomer man. 
So this topic came up last night at the Arab table, and I want to incorporate it into my thoughts today on Parashah Shemini. So first of all, I, I want to make three statements, okay, before we read this, because it's very instructive. And again, it goes back to the why we do what we do, which is critical. Critical that we know why we do what we do, right? Here's the reality. If you do not study the oral law and rabbinic literature, you will not be able to understand the scriptures to include the teachings of the Messiah. Let me say that again. If you do not study the oral law and rabbinic literature, you will not... You will not be able to understand the scriptures or the teachings of the Messiah. How do I know that? Because I've been there. And a lot of what I thought Messiah was saying back, you know, 12, 15, 20 years ago, I find out today, no, that really wasn't it at all, actually. And the reason is, is because way back in those days, I was approaching it from an, a mind of ignorance and a mind, a Greek mind. Now that I, I'm, I'm versed, you know, I'm still learning. We're all still learning, right? We, no one's perfect. But I, now that I'm versed in rabbinic literature, when I hear things, either that the Messiah is saying or that the rabbi is saying, they all, all the dots connect. Yes. And you're like, are you kidding me? It happened this week. And Bezrat Hashem, I'll be able to share it with you. Something I found this week. But the point being is, if you don't do that, then you're not going to understand. So if you, if you are, again, going back to my comment about the internet, if you're online and somebody is telling you, stay away from the Talmud, stay away from the rabbis, stay away from the Midrash, then you need to stay away from that website. Because the person who's teaching you, whatever they're trying to teach you, doesn't know anything about what they're saying. Take it to the bank. Trust me, my whole life is invested in this, okay? I, I, do, I don't do this because I'm beautiful. I do it because I love people. <laughs> and I want to see people prosper. And just trust me, if somebody says that, you know, if they're Torah without rabbinics or whatever, they, they, it's clueless. Just know, know that, trust that, all that kind of stuff, right? So, if you, now, going, taking it to statement number two. By the way, you won't, be able to, uh, uh, you won't be able to understand what Messiah is saying, and you sure, you surely will not understand what the apostolic letters are trying to say. You're for sure on that. Whatever the apostolic letters are saying, you surely, and by the way, the apostles were also rabbinic Jews, and they referred to... The Talmud and rabbinic literature. How do we know that? Because when the Apostle Paul was writing his letter to Timothy, it's his personal correspondence to Timothy, he told Timothy the names of the two magicians that cast down their staves who, that turned into serpents that Moses' serpent ate their two serpents. Actually, it says Moses' staff ate their two staves. That's a whole other topic. But the point is, the fact is that the Apostle Paul quotes and says these two names, Janus and uh, what's the other one? Janus, whatever. Uh, Janus. That is not in the Bible. The only way to find those two names is to get the, you ready for this? The Talmud. If you don't read the Talmud, then you won't know that. 
which means Paul read the Talmud, so to speak. Talmud technically wasn't written yet, but the point back, all the thoughts were there. That's the thing we don't understand. Everything's oral back in those days. They just weren't written down. Greek mindset, if it's not written down, it's not true. It's like, really? I use this illustration all the time. My grandfather, my mother's father, fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was in a Sherman tank. He used to tell us little stories as we were little kids about those battles. None, nothing he said is written down in any history book. But it's all true. It's just not written down. You know, maybe, if, I don't know, maybe I could remember some of the things he said and I could share them with a historian and the historian might write them down as an appendage to something he's written about the battle. And then now that it's written down, the Greek mind says, no, now it's true. Right? So, okay, so the second statement is this. If you do not live a rabbinic life, you cannot really live a Torah life. If you do not live a rabbinic life, you cannot really live a Torah life. How do we know that to be true? Because the Torah doesn't tell you how to live. It just tells you what to live. The Torah empowers judges to make the decision on how to carry out the law in the same way that the United States Constitution empowers Congress to make laws in accordance with the Constitution, theoretically, on how to live those laws out, right? Simple analogy, we have the Second, second Amendment, thank God, thank God, thank God. But the Second Amendment, the Congress has decided probably smartly so that you can have a uh, AR-15 or an AK-47 or you can have a 38 special but you can't have a bazooka right now, I had to send mine back <laughs> I found that out right third statement Yeshua of Nazareth listen to this statement this is what I'm about to say right now is probably the most important truth about religion that you can ever hear. That's the big statement, I know. But this is the most important thing that you could ever hear, and you need to understand it. You're going to hear me repeat it often and emphatically, and for who knows how long, it has become like a motto. It's the most important thing you need to know to help you and help me and help us and help the world achieve truth. Ready? Yeshua was a Pharisee. Yeshua was a Pharisee. That is a fact. It's indisputable. Right? I could, use, I could give many examples of why that's true. The simplest is they called him rabbi. Only Pharisees were called rabbi. That is documented historical reality. Okay? If you understand that fact, it will remove the spirit of fear, the spirit of religion, and the spirit of error from your life. Amen. Just understanding that fact. It's very important for you to know that. It's very important. If I could teach you anything, I would teach you that first. Yeshua of Nazareth was a Pharisee. And so, with that, I want to get to the point of where Yeshua rebuked the Pharisee. But before I do that, let's go back to Acts. So Acts chapter 5, we have Kepha and was brought before uh, the Sanhedrin. 
because they've been out there proclaiming the gospel, right? It was Kepha and Yochanan, right? I believe so. And so, Kepha, in chapter, excuse me, verse uh, 27, it says, Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And it says, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Meaning, the, uh, when it says this name in, in, in Judaism, it's referring to the authority of that teacher. This is why when you read rabbinic literature, it says, Rabbi so-and-so said in the name of Rabbi so-and-so who was teaching in the name of Rabbi so-and-so. What they're doing is they're dropping sources. In other words, this is not my opinion, but I got it from, so, from my rabbi who got it from his rabbi. So we are bringing this in this authority, <clears throat> which made Yeshua so unique because when he taught, he taught in his own authority. And they said, man, this guy's speaking with some authority. He's not even quoting the rabbis because he's the source of the rabbis. Okay? So anyway, we told you not to do this. And he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now listen. They, not that, that sentence right there is very important. You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. If Yeshua was not a Pharisee, that teaching would have gone nowhere. Just like it goes nowhere today from the other side of the fence. Uh, but we're going to answer that question in a second. Peter, Kepha, and the other apostle replied, we must obey God rather than men. Wait a minute. Someone said last night, I'm not a Jew for them, I'm a Jew for him. So when you're in the store... And you're buying chicken, and somebody finds out you're dobbing at Sar Shalom, and they give you a frowny face. Don't run off and try to figure out how to make them happy. Just know that it's, you live for God, not for men. Right? If somebody says, uh, well, were you, are you a Jew by birth? First of all, don't answer that question. If I was your attorney, I'd say, don't answer that question. <laughs> you know why? Because it's none of their business. That's an inappropriate question to ask any Jew. Are you born Jew or convert? If anybody asks you that, are you Jew by birth or Jew by conversion, that is an inappropriate, that's, that's, a, that's way too personal. It's, not against, it's against halakha. You're not allowed to ask somebody that. Not allowed to do that. Now, if you're talking to a rabbi and you're trying to get into their synagogue, that's, that's, you know, that's a different thing. But if you're just out on the street... I say, I'm sorry, it's none of your business. It's just like the story that two, uh, a, man and a, a man married an Asian woman, and the, Asian, the Jewish man married an Asian woman, the Asian woman converted to Orthodox Judaism. And someone uh, was talking to the man's mother-in-law, a friend of the mother-in-law came to her house, they were sitting down having a little cup of tea or whatever, and she said to her friend, the mother of the man, she says, oh, I heard that you're... Um, I heard your son married an Asian woman. And she said, no, he married a Jewess. You see, so it's not anybody's business if they ask you, are you born Jewish or, or converted? Your answer is, I'm Jewish. We're all Jews. And you can say, in fact, where you could go into a long, this is how you repel them. And so you could say, you could, you could wax eloquent and say, well, actually, all Jews are converts. If you go back to Sinai, the rabbis say, when we left Egypt, we went to Sinai, and we all mixed it together, and we all converted. 
And then we could even say that once we went to the Holy Land, we all had to get circumcised again and go through another mikvah and then converted again. So we're like twice converted. And then you could say, in fact, Rabbi Akiva was from converts, and Obadiah the prophet was from converts. It's really hard to say today who is a convert and who's not a Jew, so we're just all Jews. Nice. Are you going to buy that chicken? Because it's on sale. I'm going to buy it if you're not going to buy it. <laughs> See, don't get all, don't get all, don't go try to find out how to make them happy. We're making God happy. Okay? So there you go. So it says, <clears throat> um, He said, we must obey God rather than men. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Yeshua from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Interesting they use that phraseology. Hang him on a tree. There's no reference to a cross anywhere in the writings. God exalted him to his own right hand as a prince and a savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel, which all, all of that is in rabbinic writing. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Ruach HaKodesh, whom God had given to us uh, has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put him to death. They gave him a frowny face. <laughs> Kepha immediately ran out and tried to figure out how to make them happy and blend in and, and be able to join their community without having any more frowny faces. No, that's not. See, that's what you'd find on I don't know nothing.com. But this is what it says here. But a Pharisee, now listen who's standing up for them. I want you to listen to this. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers were dispersed and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you thus. Leave these men alone. Let them go. Now, he's a Pharisee. The only reason he would say that is because... They believe that somebody is the Messiah, but they're, they're, fair, they're Torah observant Jews. They're not hurting nobody. Because there's nothing wrong. Any Jew can believe that any other Jew is the Messiah. There's nothing illegal about that. And in fact, there's many sects of Judaism today that have their own messianic beliefs. And everybody loves everybody. It's okay. They may not agree with them, think they're a little mishugana, but everybody's okay with them. Right? Why? Because they're all keeping the mitzvot. Everybody's okay as long as you're keeping the mitzvot. Let them go. Let them go. They're not bothering anybody. Just let them go. Why? They're all keeping the mitzvot. Everything's good. They happen to believe this guy's Messiah. He's not, but okay. So just let him go. It's all good. Now, if they were running around telling everybody to eat pork chops, they would have them in prison. Right? Okay. Keep that in mind because this Torah portion is about eating unkosher in, in part. Let's see. Where am I? Um... For, let him go, let it go, let it go. For if their purpose of act or activity is a, of a human origin, it will fail. If it's of human origin, right? Listen. Hold on, don't get excited yet. Somebody's getting excited, so, uh-huh, see? No, don't get excited. 
But if it's from, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and flogged them. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Yeshua and let him go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin upset because they got a frowny face and they just want to blend in. They just want everybody to love them. No, they left what? Rejoicing. We go to buy a chicken and somebody gives us a frowny face and we lived all dejected. I just want to be loved by the Jewish community. I want to be able to go to their holla bakes. <laughs> they want to be go to their, their chili cook-offs. The apostles are getting flogged and leaving happy and we walk out with our sack of chicken depressed. <laughs> and, 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 wow. right? Okay. Come on, people. We need to grow up. Amen. Pretty soon they'll want to come to our holla bakes. They'll want to come to our chili cook-offs. We'll let them come, too. They want to come to our Purim parties. Okay, so the, uh, the, the head rabbi of the Jews for Judaism movement quoted this passage in a video um, a year or two or three or four or ten ago, however long ago. And he said that Christians read this passage and they say, see, it did continue. It was from God. And he said, but actuality, they're wrong. Because he, and he said, quote, Peter and those other guys that were in front of the Sanhedrin were all kosher Jews. He said they were Shomer Jews. And this movement continued on. And his argument was the movement continued on and became a Gentile movement. And he said, he talked about how people were eating ham and celebrating other holidays and things like that and led them away from the commandments. And as a result, it proves in his mind it was not from God. And here's the trick. Here's the uncomfortable truth. He's right. He's right. Because those men who are sitting, standing in front of the Sanhedrin today look nothing at all, at all like the people who are proclaiming this book in other areas. But there's a caveat. There's a footnote to history. And it's called the Lapid Movement. Because if you go back to this rabbi's statement, I would stand up and say, so what you're saying is, if there was a movement that believed in the Yeshua and was Shomer, you would have to say, it's from God. You would have to say that, in fact, it did carry off over, even though it was dormant for a time in exile, but it has raised its head in our generation and therefore has validity. Because if your argument is he cannot be the Messiah because his followers do not follow the mitzvot, I would agree with you. And I would say, what if his followers do keep the mitzvot? Right. Then he must be a valid Messiah. He would, people would have to give that some look. This is why you don't have rabbis running around denouncing other would-be uh, messiahs such as Nachman and Schneerson and so on. They're not denouncing them. Why? They might be the Mashiach. Why? Because their followers are keeping the Torah. Yes. 
They may not believe they're the Messiah for one reason or another, but they're not running around there rebuking him and telling him he's not the Messiah. Why? Because they're not exactly 100% sure. But they are sure about this guy, JC. Why? Because none of his followers keep the mitzvah. So that's a for sure. That's a slam dunk. This parasha, we have the, the introduction of the kashrut laws. People are running around and love to say that Yeshua made all foods clean. When you say that, you're saying he's not the Messiah. You're making a fundamental declaration. And how do we know, by the way, he did? By the, by the way, he did not say that. That's in parentheses because it's a parenthetical statement. But how do we know for sure, for sure, for sure, or as my daughter would say, for real, for real, <laughs> that he didn't say that? And the answer is, is because it was not brought up at his trial. That would have been an easy slam dunk disqualifier for being the Messiah. All the prosecuting attorney would have had to do is stand up and said, gentlemen of the jury, of the court, the defendant said that now everything, no matter what it is, is kosher. That is obviously contrary to the Torah. We all know, do we not, that the Messiah is going to lead us into Torah observance. This man has now nullified the Torah, which makes him an apostate Jew. Gentlemen of the court, I submit to you, he's not the Messiah. And they would have said, case closed, it's a done deal. They would have brought up his apostles and said, did he say that? And they said, yeah, he actually did say that. Okay, so he's not the Messiah. It would have been easy. It would have been recorded in the book. And instead of saying he was false witnesses, they would have been true witnesses. In fact... The false accuser says this in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Yeshua of Nazareth will destroy this place and, listen to this, change the customs Moses handed down to us. And it, they, and it says here in the book of Acts that that was a false witness. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Because this is not a false witness. I thought, I thought he did change the customs of Moses. That would not be a false witness then. That would be a true witness. And therefore Stephen deserves to die. But if it's a false witness, then we've got to go look back at the evidence and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if he did not come to change the customs and they lied about Stephen, then what does that mean? It means that today the customs of Moses are still intact. Notice it says customs of Moses. That means everything associated with what? Rabbinic Judaism. All right. Now to the message. <laughs> Revelation three fifteen through 20, twenty. Yeshua rebukes the Pharisees. Remember, Yeshua is a Pharisee, but he rebuked the Pharisees. If you have somebody in your life that really loves you and that you're really close to. There will come a point at which they will rebuke you. If they really love you and they're really close and it's not comfortable. No, nobody likes to rebuke and nobody likes to receive a rebuke. Right? It's never comfortable. But if they love you, they'll say something. If you're really doing something, and it could be something simple. It could be something simple. 
Like just reminding you, like my wife does. It's a, it's a simple rebuke, but it's a rebuke. And you, when you understand the definition of rebuke here in a second, you'll get it. I'm about to say the Birkat Amazon at the house, and Rebbe Sin will say, and I'm like, oh yeah, the final waters. That's a rebuke. Right? Why is she rebuking me? She's reminding me, remind me, hey, the water's there, and so you need to use it. It's a rebuke, right? But it's a loving. She's saying that because she loves me. Right? right? <laughs> Revelation 3, 15 through 20. We're about to read something. How many of you remember the passage from Revelation where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? We often interpret that to be like, Oh, look, he's knocking like, Hello, my beloved. Let me in. Let me in. I will come and dine with you. I love you. You're so precious to me. That's not what it means. Let's look at the passage. I know your deeds that you are neither cold. Now I'm going to read from the Amplified Version. This is Revelation 3, 15 through 20 back there in the control booth. This is Amplified. The reason I'm reading Amplified is because I want to Amplify it. <laughs> I know your deeds that you are neither cold, invigorating, refreshing, nor hot, healing, or therapeutic. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, that is spiritually useless. And neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth, rejecting you with disgust. Because you say I am rich and have prospered and grown wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind, naked, without hope and in great need, I counsel you to buy from me gold that has been heated red hot and refined by fire so that you may become truly rich. And white clothes representing righteousness to clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness will not be seen. And a healing salve to put on your eyes so that you may see. Listen to this part. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I rebuke and discipline, showing them their faults and instructing them. So be enthusiastic and repent. Change your inner self, your old way of thinking, your sinful behavior, and seek God's will, which is always, always, always a euphemism for Torah. Now, now the verse. Behold, I stand at the door and continually knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, restore him, and he with me. Now, we're going to understand that verse in a second, what it means, because the context is, you are spiritually useless, you are not hot, hot, neither hot nor cold, I'm struggling to deal with you. And I'm rebuking you, and now I'm knocking at your door, and I'm telling you that if anyone opens up to me, then I'll come in him, into him and restore him. So the knocking, if you hear, here's the point. If you hear Yeshua knocking at your door, that ain't good. Yeah, because if he's knocking at your door, that's daddy who's shown up saying, son, we need to go outside for a sec. I heard something about you, we need to come out here. And no one opens the door and goes, Abba, I'm ready. <laughs> right? So, to understand this verse, we're going to go to Song of Songs, Shira Shireem. Shira Shireem, Song of Songs 5-2. 
I sleep, but my heart is awake. A voice, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. Which, by the way, if you take the first letter of that, those words, it spells Tishrei, which is the month of Teshuvah. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew and my locks with dewdrops of night. Song of Songs 5.2. To this verse, this is what Ma'am Loez says. I am asleep, but my heart is awake. A sound, my beloved knocks. People respond, he says, to one another in three different ways. One might hear a comrade cry for help and respond by shouting, here am I. Then again, it may happen that the other person is too far to be heard. And so he sees only one waving his arms to call attention to himself and his distress. Someone will then come near. There is also a third possible circumstance. When the person in danger is asleep. When the person in danger is asleep. You're asleep in the light. Then a neighbor might knock at his door with a rock or his fist to rouse him from his sleep. Correspondingly, there are three ways whereby God arouses a person. At first, he calls to us through wise men and prophets, like Droshes. Not that I'm a prophet, but, you know, calls to us these ways. He does this in each generation. Then the finger of God invokes physical afflictions upon us as one shaking his finger in warning. But the suffering is relatively light. As the sages declare, the merciful one does not begin by taking a life, for it is not his way to deprive man of good things of this world. As it says, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. What then is the suffering? According to the Talmud, suffering may be considered anything at all, be it ever so slight, which prevents a person from being perfectly happy. So if you find yourself enduring a little suffering, we always, always, always should ask ourselves, is there something I need to correct in my life? Life happens, but everything is from Hashem, so we take everything to, as a moment of, of reflection. I had a, a bad experience. Let me think about this. The, above these two stages, he writes, are referred in the book of Proverbs where Solomon says, because I've called out to you, you refuse. I stretch out my hand and no man attended. Proverbs 1.24. If that man does not have the desired, excuse me, if that does not have the desired effect, God resorts to harsh decrees as our sages have declared. He establishes a king over them that, who is terrible like Haman. And the present verse, this stage, this stage corresponds to the image of God knocking on the door when a man has no choice but to repent. So it's saying here, in the book of Revelation, is talking about this rabbinical view that when God really needs to wake us up and make us hot or cold, in other words, hot and cold is not, a, you're either good or bad. It means, like we read here in the Amplified, you either have a, a passion for, for healing or you have a passion for, for refreshing. In other words, when he's really wanting to wake us up, he comes and knocks in our door. And the reason that Yeshua is knocking is because we wouldn't listen to the word and we wouldn't listen to the signal, but we have now to have be physically manhandled by him. That's the rebuke. The word in Hebrew for rebuke is hoki. Ho kiach, ho kiach. It means to admonish, to
to repute, to reprove, okay? It also means, at its root, to make manifest, to cause the sunshine to come in, to be clear. So in other words, when we, get, when, when we are rebuked, we in our English mind receive that as a negative, but when someone is properly rebuking us, and this, let's keep it with, in this case, God, when he's properly rebuking us for the right motive, we should have clarity and light. It should bring sunshine on a otherwise dark situation in our life. So it says, from here we learn that he who sees his neighbor doing something unbecoming, he is duty bound to admonish him. If he did admonish him and he did not heed it, he must do it again. The hithba of this Hebrew word means to argue to be justified. And so it says in the Hebrew dictionary, the Lord came to argue with Israel from Leviticus Rabbah 27. Can anyone argue successfully with their creator? So in other words, it's saying in Leviticus Rabbah that it's Hashem who comes to rebuke. But what's the purpose of the rebuke? The purpose of the rebuke is to inspire correction. If you're not doing something he wants you to do, then he wants you to do whatever he wants you to do. So he rebukes you for it. Which is why Yeshua rebukes the Pharisees. Now, in the book of Mark, chapter 7. In the book of Mark, chapter 7, we have this story. We're going to read it here in just a second. But before we read the story, I want to read to you from the Talmud. Because if you don't understand the Talmudic writings, you can't understand the story. It's no sense reading it. If you read the story without understanding the Talmud, then you'll declare that everything like pork and rabbit and snake and everything else is kosher. If you don't read the story, then that's the conclusion you come to because what do you, you don't know what you don't know. Right? So in the story, in the story we're about to read, the Pharisees are sent to Messiah. Get this. I want, this is very important. This first part is critical. The, a group of Pharisees are sent to the Messiah to find out if he's the Messiah. Now, I want you to understand that Pharisees would never in a million years ever, ever consider someone who's not a Pharisee the Messiah. Not in a million years. Someone said, you know, you hear, you, you, back in the day, it's been a long time, but back in the day when, you, when, when I used to watch these programs that are uh, eschatological programs, and these people are up there waxing eloquently about, you know, the Messiah, he could show up and he could be a Muslim. Or he could, be from, uh, he could be from the Vatican. I'm looking at these people going, the Jewish people are never going to go, hey, look, Mohammed he's the Mashiach. Oh, look, Cardinal Wallace, he's the Mashiach, of course. Only Mashiach will come from Torah observant rabbinical Jews. Anybody else automatically disqualified. It's a non-starter. So back in the day, you have a group of Pharisees who are going to see Yeshua to find out, like, hey guys, go find out if he's really the Messiah. That means he was a Pharisee. Undeniable fact. Okay? Very important. But when they go there, they notice that some, some, say some. Some. 
Some is a word in English means not all. It says some of his disciples. Say disciples. Now, Yeshua is the rabbi, not the disciple, right? So we assume that he washed his hands. But some of his disciples didn't. Not all of his disciples were necessarily religious. Okay? We can account for that. But anyway, it says that they say some of your disciples did not wash their hands. Before doing what? Eating bread. Key word is, say bread. Bread. Okay. So the Talmud, I'll give you some references here. Barakot 53b. It says here, the rabbis taught in Abraisha, the oil which you cleanse your hands at the end of a meal holds back the blessing. These are the words of Zivlal. Zivlal said it does not hold back the blessing. Rab Akha says good oil holds back the blessing. Rab Zumai says no it doesn't. Joseph says one with the offensive odor uh, is, should not be in temple service. So one should, wipe, should wash their hands. So too, hands with offensive odor are ineligible for reciting the Birkat Mazon, which is why we use the final waters to make our hands worthy of lifting them up in praise. Rav Nachlin Bar Yitzhak said, I do not know Zilal, nor Zivai, nor Zimumai, but I do know the Beresha, for Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, and others say that it was taught in the Beresha, and he quotes Leviticus 11.45. The verse says, and you shall sanctify yourselves. This is a reference to the first waters with which we wash our hands prior to eating bread. Then the verse continues, and you shall become holy. This is a reference to the Mayim Achronim, which is the waters with which we wash our hands after eating bread before we say the Birkat Amazon. Okay? Quoting from this week's parasha as the source. All right? Now, we have Erovin 21b. Erovin 21b, it says... Rabbi Yehoshua recounted to him the entire incident that had occurred with the prison guard. This is a story about, okay, let me back up. The rabbis taught in Abrasia, an incident took place with Rabbi Akiva, who came from a family of converts. When he was incarcerated in prison, and Rabbi Yehoshua Hagarsi would attend to his needs, and every day they would bring him, that is, they would bring Rabbi Akiva a measure of amount of water. One day the prison guard encountered Rabbi Yehoshua. The guard said, you have too much water today. Perhaps you need it to dig out of the prison. He spilled out half the water, gave it to him, Rabbi Yehoshua, the remaining half. When Rabbi Yehoshua came to Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva said to him, Yehoshua, do you not know that I am old and my life depends on your life? Rabbi Yehoshua recounted to him the entire incident that had occurred with the prison guard. And Rabbi Akiva said to him, give me the water that, I, that, that you brought so that I might wash my hands before eating bread. Rabbi Yehoshua said to him, there's not even enough water here to drink. Is there enough water to spare to wash your hands? And Rabbi Akiva said to him, what can I do? They, the rabbinical laws, carry the death penalty. It is better that I should die a cause of death myself, which they don't carry the death penalty, but that's another topic. But rather than to transgress the will of my colleagues, he who ordained the obligation to wash one's hand for eating bread. Erevine 21b goes on to say that this whole thing about washing hands came from King Solomon who instituted the law that one must wash their hands before they eat of the holy offerings. The rabbis, it goes on to explain in the footnotes, 
The rabbis expanded it to eating bread in order to train the Kohanim that they should wash before eating holy things. But it was a tradition based on a fence law, but King Solomon said you should wash before you eat the holy offering. Not any old bread. Okay? But it became a custom, and the custom had a purpose. Okay? Finally, one more reference. Hulin 106a. Hulin 106a. Let's see here. Let's see. Rav Ida bar Avin said in the name of Rav Yitzhak bar Ashnayan, washing hands for bread. Say bread. bread. Washing hands for bread of Hulin. Hulin is bread. Is necessary in order to establish a routine for Teruma. Teruma is the offering that's offered up on the altar that you're supposed to eat of. And also because it's a mitzvah. So the note 32 here on the footnote says, The rabbis decreed a general status of Shanae Lutmai on Setam Yadayim, ordinary unwashed hands. That is, they decreed, the rabbis decreed, that all unwashed hands, even where the hands were known not to have touched anything to me, were deemed as Shani Letume, in other words, unclean, which can transmit to me to and render prohibited any teruma on the or the, the kodeshim that they touch. The reason for this enactment is that it is quite likely that without knowing the person touched parts of his body that were perspired or otherwise unclean. If he were then to touch teruma or kodesh, the holy food would become repugnant or even inedible. To avoid such irreverent treatment of the holy food, the rabbis declared that unwashed hands always have the status of shenay, thereby forcing everyone who plans to handle teruma or kodesh to rinse the hands beforehand. The rabbis allowed for this, this tumay to be removed through the purify, purifying of the hands alone, either by washing them from a vessel, netilat yadayim, or through the immersion of the hands into a mikvah, without the need, listen, without the need for the person to immerse his entire body. Without the need for the person to immerse his entire body. So when you're about to hear Yeshua's rebuke, understand he's rebuking on a metaphorical understanding. Because he washed his hands. But he's going to the sowed level of the metaphor, which is you wash your hands, but you haven't immersed your body. See, if you don't read the Talmud, then that's, this story I'm about to read for the Mashiach is not going to make any sense. I've got to hurry because I've, I've got to share. I've got to share this. Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 7, excuse me. Verse 1, okay, here we go. Now the Pharisees, the Brushim, and men from the scholars who had come from Yeshulayim assembled to him when they saw some of his disciples eating bread with the hands that were impure, that is to say without ritual washing, they rebuked them. Rebuked them. Right? It's not, they were trying to get him to do right. They rebuked them. This is good. Because the Messiah is like, oh, you're going to rebuke my disciples. Well, let me go ahead and rebuke you a little bit. You done spanking? All right, turn around. <laughs> so he says, <clears throat> first of all, you're not supposed to rebuke somebody's disciples in front of their rabbi. Right, right. So the Prushim, all the Yehudim do not eat until they have done ritual hand washing up to the wrist. 
and holding to what the elders handed down, and they do not eat what comes from the market without immersion. And there are other things that they have received to observe, such as immersion cups, pitchers, kettles, that's uh, Tevila. The Prushin and the scholars asked him, why are your disciples not behaving according to the traditions of our elders? Important, ver important verse right there. If they're not Pharisees, what sense does it mean to ask why they're not following our traditions? If they're not Pharisees. Do we go to Russia and inquire why they don't have 4th of July? Why? Because they're not Americans. Okay. Why are your disciples not behaving according to traditions for elders? For they are eating bread. Bread. Say bread. bread. The issue is bread. They're eating bread without ritual hand washing. He answered them and said, Yes, ye all prophesied well about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is distant from me. Their fear of me is empty. They teach mitzvot of men. For they have abandoned the mitzvah of God in order to hold the traditions of, of the sons of men. He said to them, How nice that you have nullified the mitzvah of God in order to observe your tradition. Now listen, Yeshua is not against hand washing. He's bringing them, taking them to the task because they dip their hands but not their body. He said, how nice you know Father Mitzvah of God in order to observe your tradition. For Moshe said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses mother or father shall surely die. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, Corban, which is interpreted the gift of God, it's anything that you should receive as my beneficiary, you do not allow him to do anything further for his father and mother. So you violate the word of God through the tradition that you received, as do do many other things like this. I should put a footnote in here and say there, there were at least seven different types of Pharisees, different sects of Pharisees. Just like in Judaism today, not all Orthodox sects have the same level of custom or whatever. So these, some surmise, these people might have been from the house of Shammai, which had put a special emphasis on purity that the house of Hillel did not have. So now they're trying to bring, their, which is another mitzvah, when you go to a community and you learn their customs, you do not implement your own customs while you're there at the community. Amen. So if you go someplace else, some other Jewish community, you're on vacation, and you say, I'm going to go to uh, such and such synagogue while I'm here on vacation, and you notice that it's their custom to sit for the Torah reading, you don't stand. You sit. It's their custom. It's not right for you to try to bring your customs into that community, which is what they were trying to do here. Okay? So it says, then he called to the people and said to them, listen to me, all of you understanding. There is nothing outside of a person, listen to this, there is nothing outside of a person that can contaminate him by going into him. Rather, he's talking about bread and, and eating with unclean hands. He's not talking about kosher food because the fact of the matter is, if you eat unkosher food, it will absolutely defile you. How do we know that? Because the scripture says so. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about eating with unclean hands, or unwashed hands. Okay? Listen to me, all of you who understand this. There is nothing outside of a person that can contaminate him by going into him. Rather, the things coming out of him contaminate the person. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Now, I want you to notice one thing really quick. Yeshua, in, in none of this story, does Yeshua rebuke ritual hand washing. Does he, he never says you should not ritually wash your hands. He is saying that just understand that it's not what goes in you that's a problem. It's what comes out of you. That's what he's saying. See, the ritual is awesome as long as you don't get caught up in the form. Right? 
So it says, as he returned home from the crowd, his disciples asked him the matter, the matter of the parable. And he said, and even you lacking discernment, you do not comprehend that whatever comes within a person from the outside of him does not contaminate him. For it does not come into his heart, but rather into his stomach. And it goes out to the toilet which cleanses all that is eaten. He said, what comes out from the person is what contaminates the person. Because from within the person, from his heart, come out the evil thoughts, adultery, sexual morality, murder, stealing, love of profit, wickedness, fraud, gluttony, evil eye, blasphemy, insolence, and folly. All these things are from, the, from within the person. They come out and contaminate him. Okay? Now, with that, we understand what the side is trying to say is that you are not going to become unclean if you happen to eat with unwashed hands. But that does not mean you can eat a pork chop. Because you will become unclean then and you, your, your spiritual senses will be dull. So I want to read to you now a, a, a brief description here. Try to make it brief here. 32, y'all with me? Stay with me. This is important. The beggar Messiah from the Messiah text. If you don't have this book, you need to get it. The Messiah text. The beggar Messiah Rabbi Zivi Amalek dwelt in the city of Dinov, and he had a son who was the rabbi of Strizev, but who always sat with his father in Dinov. Once a poor beggar came to the city of Dinov for the Holy Shabbat, and that poor man was the Messiah. He went to Aruna's house, for there he did not, for they did not let him in, uh, let him enter a respectable lodging. He left his things with a poor baker whose boys plagued him very much. On the Sabbath, the boys chased after him at the time of prayer so that he would not be able to concentrate in prayer. At the outgoing of the Shabbat, the Rebbe of Strizev invited his Hasidim to the meal ushering out the Queen's Shabbat. And the aforementioned poor man also came with them to the meal. And there too the boys made fun of him and also plagued him. And when the rabbi of Strizev saw this, he arose and said to the poor man, Go please to the rabbi David Rees. He too is having a rich meal, ushering out the queen. And there you can eat and drink to your heart's desire. But he answered him, My intention is not to eat and drink, but rather to hear words of Torah. The rabbi of Strizev thereupon rose and drove him from the house, lest he cause them a disruption in their celebration of ushering out the queen Shabbat. While they sat at the ushering out of the queen, the rabbi of Dinov was already asleep, and his son, the rabbi of Strizev, locked the door from the outside. After they ate, the rabbi of Strizev said, Let us recite the Birkat Hamazon, for I must go to open the door. So it says, he heard that inside the house, people were discussing mysteries of Torah. He tried to open the door, and he found that the door was locked, not just from the outside, but also from the inside. It came to pass in the morning that he asked his father, who was there with you? And he told him that it was the aforementioned poor beggar. Who was Messiah ben David? When his son heard this, he fell to the ground and fainted. And when he came to, he instantly ran to the baker to find out whether the poor man was there. But he found him not. For a pillar of fire had come and taken him from there. May the merit of the righteous preserve us. Now, with that in mind, so the poor beggar is Messiah, right? A story from Hasidic tales. A kosher tongue. Rabbi Yaakov Yitzhak of Peshicha, the Yid HaKodesh, once ordered his senior disciple, Reb Simcha Bonem, to make a journey, journey to a distant hamlet. When he inquired as to the purpose of the journey, the Yid HaKodesh remained silent. Reb Simcha Bonem took several Hasidim with him and they left on the journey. 
The sky had already turned to dust by the time they arrived at their destination. Because the town had no end, Reb Simka Bunim ordered his coachman to stop at the first cottage. He knocked at the door and was invited in along with his students. When they asked whether they could join their host for dinner, the man replied that he had no dairy food and could only offer them meat, uh, a meat meal. Instantly, the Hasidim bombarded the man with questions about his level of kashrut. Alright, that's always polite. Who was the shokit, they, 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 they demanded to know. Were the animals lung free of even the smallest blemish? Was the meat salted sufficiently to draw out the traces of blood, as was required by Torah? The interrogation would have continued had not a commanding voice from the back of the cottage called out to them. They turned their attention from the owner of the home to a man who was dressed like a beggar sitting near the hearth smoking a pipe. Listen to this. My dear Hasidim, the beggar said, with regard to what goes in your mouths, you are scrupulous. Yet regarding what comes out of your mouth, you make no inquiry at all. When Reb Simka Bonim heard these words, he knew the reason for his journey. He nodded respectfully to the beggar, thanked the householder for his concern, house owner for his concern, returned to the wagon, and he said to his students, come now, we are ready to return to Pisgah. What do we know? What do we know? May it be your will, Hashem, that we guard what we eat and only eat what you have us to eat, and that we guard our tongues and only speak what you would have us to speak. May your name be blessed and magnified and help us, Hashem, to remain pure even as you are pure and holy, even as you are holy. B'shem Yeshua. Amen.